Hello, and welcome to Erskine Conversations. We bring the Erskine College and Theological Seminary campus to you. In each episode, we will be diving into the conversations that happen every day across Erskine's campus among students, faculty, staff, and more. Today, I invite you to listen in as we talk with Dr. Christine Schott, Associate Professor of English here at Erskine College. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversation. Dr. Shaw, thank you for joining us today. Uh, I'm so happy to have another professor here to talk through things with us. That's always fun to do. I'm delighted to be here. So, always a good sort of starting question, um, just to kind of get to introduce yourself a little bit and then to sort of connect you to Erskine. Um, What was your journey from undergraduate to, you know, master's, PhD, and then how did you find your way to Erskine? So... In my very first semester of undergrad, I was in a course called Humanities, and I really was shocked by how relevant the literature felt. Um, Even though we were reading classical literature, we read things up to the Renaissance, I think is where we stopped. And uh, I had never really, i had always loved reading, but I'd always read contemporary things. And I was was amazed at how um, the things that people talked about in classical literature and medieval literature and in Shakespeare, they were Mm. the same things that we talked about. And so, uh, in, in ordinary life. And so I was, I was just captivated by this and my professors were really wonderful. Mm. And so from about week four of undergrad, I was like, I want to be a professor. Uh, and so as I continued to kind of study and I was an English major and where were you? I was at Dartmouth Dartmouth, for my undergrad. Yes. And so as I continued as in my English major, uh, I, kind of settled on medieval as, as my focus, medieval literature, uh, in part because the literature of the Renaissance, as much as I love Shakespeare, it just feels very close to us. You know, Which Shakespeare is funny. Is, <laughs> I know, for, for other people <laughs> who think he, uh, you know, doesn't really speak English, uh, it probably feels very foreign, but right. after you Heck, spend even a, if you do speak English. Yeah. Sometimes. It, <laughs> If you spend enough time with Beowulf, then then Shakespeare starts to feel really familiar. That's, that's a good point. Really that's familiar. Really point. Uh, you know, the... the <laughs> sort of cultural context is is a lot more similar to mm. ours than than oh, we yeah. get in like Anglo-Saxon literature. Yeah. And so I was just captivated by the otherness of of medieval literature that just seemed more challenging in a way, but okay. also more beautiful. I, I just I still and uh, I get the shivers when I'm teaching Beowulf and I get to talk about the dragon and, and you know, I, I get shivers <laughs> still. Well, that is that is a good thing as an educator to like still kind of get those uh, education shivers, the, the ed- education butterflies, you could say. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So I, I went to um, graduate school at the University of Virginia for okay. my PhD, and I went right through master's and PhD in the same program. Okay. And uh, partway through my PhD, right after my qualifying exams, I was lucky enough to get a scholarship to go and study in Iceland for a year. Okay. So I got a master's degree in medieval Icelandic studies where I studied the sagas and That's um, cool. Viking literature and uh, Viking religion, uh, to, to put it simply. But <laughs> I, I really, I didn't think that it was going to be particularly relevant in my career path because I, I was going to be an English professor. But then uh, when I interviewed at Erskine, they wanted someone who could also teach world literature. And I was like, well, I mean, I, I also study Icelandic literature. And they're like, yeah, that's fine. Perfect. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. So, Man. so what, what was it like being in Iceland? Um, it was wonderful. It was <laughs> the program that I was in was an English speaking program for foreign students. Uh, That's and good. when I was there, it was a very European heavy uh, hmm. population of students in that program. So we had 
um, you know, people from France and Germany. And we had one person from Spain and one person from uh, Japan. Oh, wow. Uh, not European, I know. <laughs> but um, I was the only person who had grown up in the U.S. Huh. to be in that program. We had a Canadian and we had um, a Russian-American who'd come to the U.S. when she was a teenager. Wow. So I was the only person who'd grown up in the U.S. to to be in this program. And it was an amazing exchange between, you know, the French speakers and the German speakers. And we all took our classes in English, but it was um, the most sort of honest and frank exchange of cultures mm. that I think I've ever experienced. Uh, and that's not even considering the fact that we were in Iceland and living right. in Reykjavik and uh, learning Icelandic and learning uh, something about the literature and the history of the area. Iceland is an incredibly beautiful place, yeah. uh, very stark, a little bit like the uh, sort of northern part of Scotland. Mm -hmm. um, and when I was there, it was right before Iceland became the place everybody wanted to travel to. Huh. So people were still kind of like, why would an American come what? to Reykjavik? Why are you here? Yeah, there, there was this sort of charming weirdness to the fact that I was there. So I, instead huh. of being the annoying tourist, yeah. I was kind of an oddity. And, and so I, I didn't feel like I was annoying the locals by being there and it was uh, quite a wonderful experience that i think you can't necessarily have now because everybody wants to visit iceland it's yeah. a very popular tourist destination now interesting yeah. so can you give me the reason as to why it's called iceland and it's not icy is uh, there is there like i feel like that's gotta be a question they get in iceland yeah they have an answer for it you. it does it, i'm sure it is um so like I'm curious if it's like the language or like their history or just it's just funny because you got Iceland and Greenland that are complete opposite of their names. Right. Yeah. At well, least in Amer at least in English. Yeah. Exactly. And and it's true in Icelandic as well. Really? <laughs> um, and I actually know more about the the reason that they call Greenland Greenland. Okay. Um, than the reason they call Iceland Iceland. I, I assumed that um, <laughs> when the settlers from Denmark and Norway came to Iceland, they're like, gee, it's a little bit colder here than it was in Denmark. They hadn't but, found um, Greenland yet. They hadn't found Greenland yet, exactly. <laughs> but when Greenland was discovered, uh, they asked um, Eric the Red, who was the kind of first primary settler of Greenland, well, what do you want to call this place? And he said, Greenland. And they're like, are you kidding? It's a little bit cold here. What? And he said, people are more likely to come if it has a good name. That's funny. So uh, that's huh. the story that comes down through the sagas, at least, of why Greenland is called Greenland. Man, so what you're saying is false advertisement is an old tradition. <laughs> exactly. It, it did not originate in the 20th century. <laughs> that's that's really funny to think yeah. that. So when would that have been, Eric the Red? Oh, dates are not my thing. Um, oh, gosh. <laughs> 12th century, maybe? Oh, wow. Before that, probably. Man, so, wow. And they, they just stuck with it. They said, you know what, we're just going to keep Iceland and Greenland because... Yep. It's here, and we've already got on our maps, so no, no reason to change all of that stuff. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Man, okay. So how did you find your way to Erskine? So in my field, you don't um, choose where you work. You the, the job market is fairly narrow for right. English professors, and so if a job opens up, you go where the job is. Mm -hmm. And I was very fortunate that you know I, I could go anywhere that I had a job opportunity. Um, but it was really providential that I ended up here because, I mean, it was – it's pretty random. They were advertised right. and I answered the advertisement. But um, at the time, I didn't know whether I wanted to work in a big research university or a small teaching institution. Uh -huh. uh, but I ended up at a small teaching institution and it ended up being really the kind of perfect match for me because I really do enjoy putting most of my energy into the teaching side as opposed to the research. I mean, I do research, but I really 
I want to expend my energy as, as a teacher, which is why I really got into this gig. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it also was really providential in that when I was uh, looking to go into graduate school, I didn't really know whether I wanted to do literature or creative writing because mm. my undergraduate training is um, was a focus in creative writing. And so I said, well, I'll, I'll do the PhD instead of the MFA. So I, I went with the literature route, but then they needed someone to teach the creative writing courses here. So I get to do both, nice. uh, which has been really an enormous blessing for me because um, you teach in very different ways in a literature classroom versus a creative writing classroom. And it's yeah. um, it's wonderful to get to do both of those things. So what is the difference between uh, like a teaching position as an English major and the research position? Like what would what would distinguish those two opportunities? Um, for a, a professor at a research institution, um, it's kind of a usually a publisher parish situation where if you don't publish usually a book, <laughs> they will let you go after a, a certain number a of years. A book or like a book every year or? <laughs> it depends on the institution, but usually to get uh, tenure, you have to have at least one book. Depending on the institution, you might need more. Hmm. Um, whereas at a teaching institution, they do usually have expectations that you publish your research and, and um, right. I have several articles out, but their focus is primarily on, are you a good teacher and are you doing the things yeah. that you need to do in the classroom? Okay. So um, usually a research institution would have a lot of graduate students that do a lot of the interaction with the undergrads, yeah. which is great when you're a grad student and you're learning to be a teacher. It was great for me at UVA, but um, I wanted the personal interaction with the students that I get at Erskine. And that is definitely one of the things that Erskine has that can't stress enough to any prospective students listening, having the ability to know your professors and for them to engage with you as a, as a person, as a student, to know you, to know which people in your classes, especially general education classes that aren't majors, you know, you have a certain amount of time with them before they go on to something else. And you hope that you can give them some kind of passion for, for this thing that, I mean, a lot of times your class might be one of the first times they actually really engage with literature in a critical way and not just in a read this answer, a question and answer, mm -hmm. you know, write a three sentence paragraph on it, but to really dive into the material yeah. and try and to trying to kind of swim in it and then see what it was about and, and all that kind of thing. That's, yeah. that's such a, a big thing of the liberal arts education that Erskine seeks to, to provide to their students. Yeah, absolutely. I always uh, try to make it clear to my students that, you know, I come in with a certain background and my own interests in the <laughs> literature that we're studying. And, and so even if they study the same piece of literature with a different professor, they'll probably get different things oh, emphasized, yeah. but that doesn't crowd out their own you know, ability to respond. And, you know, we have a lot of fun in class with uh, deciding, you know, how we as a 21st century audience would respond to these medieval uh, stereotypes and medieval stories that people were very familiar with. Right. Uh, we often talk about how, okay, we're probably seeing this in a very different way than they did. Yeah. And I think yeah. it's legitimate for us to say uh, that our response is different than theirs would be. And maybe to try to understand both of those as mm -hmm. best we can, our own personal response and then the historical response. Uh, because if if all we're doing is sort of looking at it from a historical perspective, then it's a fossil, yeah. right? And literature is not fossilized. Literature lives every time it's read. And so mm. we're making it come back to life every time we reinterpret it or every time we apply 
um, you know, kind of current events to the way we read Chaucer or whatever, that uh, that makes the literature still meaningful for us. And yeah. I think that's really important that we do that. So, I mean, so I'm assuming that Chaucer is one of the things y'all read. Yes. Yeah. Have you seen the movie A Knight's Tale? Yes. I actually referenced it in my class the other day. Did you really? That's <laughs> well, I, <laughs> we, uh, we read uh, Chrétien de Troyes' uh, Lancelot, the story of Lancelot, okay. in which um, he does something to offend Guinevere, and as a punishment, she makes him uh, lose at a tournament to prove his love to her. And so I, I tell my students, if you haven't seen A Knight's Tale, that happens in A Knight's Tale. They didn't make it up. They took it from Chrétien de Troyes. So, um, and I know Chaucer has a, a sort of cameo role in A Knight's Tale in that film. Um, oh, it's, it's a great movie. What's his name? Uh, Paul Bettany. Yes. He is such a just entertaining actor. His his depiction of Chaucer in this sort of flamboyance. Um, I mean, what I would imagine someone who is dedicated to literature in a time when no one can read. Yeah. Like just that sort of he is so grandiose because he knows all these things. Mm -hmm. uh, it, was, it was really entertaining. Yeah. Um, we actually have an, uh, an image from a 15th century manuscript of Chaucer, quote unquote, reading to Richard II, but on the podium, there's no book. So the the image, I mean, whether this actually historically happened or not, but the idea is that he would recite from memory. Man. And so you do have this idea that he would be very performative and he'd be very dramatic and he'd, he'd be gesturing mm -hmm. uh, to make it really entertaining. So we, we think of this as something that's sort of like... You, it just sits yeah. on the page, you know, in our Norton anthology. But that's I don't think that's how people experienced oh, no. medieval literature in, oh, no. in the period. Well, they, they couldn't because they they couldn't have done it themselves. They needed somebody to to make it come alive for them. Yeah. Um, yeah. Otherwise, you'd, you'd bore them all. Granted, they didn't, they didn't exactly have like cell phones and things to distract them. <laughs> they had a low bar for entertainment. <laughs> yeah, they're very low bar. But at the same time, I mean, yeah, you, you had these people that were like storytellers yeah. that that drew people into and they imagined they saw these things in their mind's eye as they were going through or they might have seen it somewhat in their mind's eye and somewhat in front of them yeah as someone was yes. miming something exactly or whatnot. Exactly. um well so my next question for you is something that uh one of my good friends who went to school with me she was a she has her degree in english and i believe she went on to get a master's in performing because she also was heavily involved in, i think she was a double major in english and music cool um and we you know, we, we kind of share this this question jokingly because it's from the, the musical Avenue Q. Uh, so I'm going to turn it to you. What do you do with a BA in English? Now I'm going to be singing that song all afternoon. Perfect. Um, That's, that was my goal. Yes. Uh, that always is the question, right? Because student, I always hate to see a student come in and say, I love English, but I don't know what I would do with an English degree, so I'm not going to major in it. And you're like... Ex Pointing, dress, <laughs> yourself. I was Excuse an English me. major. <laughs> uh, exactly. So I think in some ways the, the answer that we give to that question is not very helpful because we always say you can do anything with an English major. Right. Because <laughs> what we really focus on in, in, in English education is gaining a lot of important skills, you know, oral and written communication, critical thinking, problem solving, analysis, all of these things that are really difficult to quantify, mm -hmm. but you, you use in just about every job you and could people think of. want you to be good at it. And people, exactly, <laughs> um, you know, they've done all sorts of studies about how, um, you know, employers are desperate for people who are good communicators, outside of the box thinkers, mm -hmm. critical thinkers, and you can get that in any liberal arts major. But you know, we pride ourselves in doing it particularly well in English. Yeah, um, and. 
I think in some ways that answer where you can do anything is a little bit scary because it just leaves the doors wide open. Yeah. It doesn't give you a path. It's you almost know? too inspecific. Exactly. If, if you are a uh, pre-med uh, student, you're going to medical school. Like you have a path. In the name. Exactly. Yeah, it's built in. <laughs> Whereas with English, we're like, well, you could be a teacher, you could be a lawyer, you could go into business. And, and we've had students from Erskine do all of those yeah. things and, and more. Uh, and so, you know, what do you do? You do anything with a BA in English is not particularly helpful. Right. <laughs> um, but for me, it's really been an opportunity to do one of the things that I love the most, which is to continue to be a student. Mm. Um, I, what you do when you are researching to write articles or books as a literary scholar is, is you're continuing to be a student. You're yeah. studying what other people have said about these things and you're trying to have your own thoughts and you're creating a new way of looking at a piece of literature that we maybe haven't thought of before. And right. that's just what you do as an English major. So, um, I realized that for me personally, I was good at that and I really enjoyed it. And becoming an English professor was one way that I got to continue to do that forever. Right. Yeah. Um, can I take that one step further? What sort of like opportunities has this been able to afford you or what, what passions have you been able to, to kind of pursue yeah. by having not only a background in English in terms of like your academic stature, but also in terms of um, just what you've been able to do in life because that was the direction you took. Yeah. Well, actually, um, one of the things that being a scholar has allowed me to do is, is a lot of travel. I was going to say. <laughs> uh, because one of the things that I study is manuscripts and medieval manuscript culture. Okay. And where do they keep the manuscripts? Well, usually in England or in Iceland, you know, depending yeah. on what you're studying. So, Monasteries. Um, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Well, mostly, uh, you know, institutions like now. Yeah. yeah. Museums and universities now. But I've taken uh, trips to see manuscripts at Oxford and the British Library and Trinity College Dublin. Mm. Um, I was at Trinity College Dublin two summers ago, um, and uh, it was this wonderful experience of <laughs> um, walking through the, the long room, which is they call it the Harry Potter Library. And it just it looks like the library in Harry Potter. It's these these big oak um, bays where you have just hundreds and hundreds of these beautiful books and there's tons of tourists in there oh. and and they tell you okay you're actually a researcher you, you're here to see one of those manuscripts you know go to the back of the room someone will let you down the stairs and you sort of fight your way through the crowd and uh there's there's this set of stairs that somebody lets you into and you feel like you really shouldn't be there <laughs> and then you wander around until you find the reading room so it was this this wonderful um sort of bizarre experience of being there to look at a manuscript and um, being in the space with the tourists. Uh, but at the same time, I wasn't among them. You know, I was there right. for, for a particular purpose. And, and that kind of changed my experience there because I wasn't just there to, you know, gawk and take pictures, but I was there for to kind of get a sense of this. Exactly. Well, I took a couple of those too. Okay. Um, I mean, you gotta be at least a little bit of touristy. Exactly. Yeah. If you're, if you're going to be there, yeah. um, but it was it was for an article that I was working on and being able to um, look at the manuscript in person allowed me to finish that article. Mm -hmm. So um, the the opportunity to travel, which is something that I, I just love in general, mm -hmm. um, is really wonderful that it connects to my work as, as a scholar because I'm not just there for selfish reasons, mm -hmm. but but I'm there to kind of continue this sort of academic conversation that um, that I've been engaged in. And so yeah. it's 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 travel with kind of like a bonus added. Right. Yeah. yeah, you get to you're not just there necessarily for the sights and the sounds, but mm -hmm. you're there to 
almost like drink in the history that was yeah. that was a part of this particular place. Like yeah. that's one thing that I hope to be able to because I've never actually gotten to leave the states. Oh, wow. So I, I look forward to the day I can go somewhere that just has such a wealth of history. Like it's always cool for me. Like I've gotten to to go like New York and Chicago and been to Portland and DC and places where they're older than a lot of places I've, yeah. I've grown around, but yeah. older, older America is kind of like, like a chuckle when you compare it to older, like Europe. Yeah, exactly. You go overseas and I mean, you see castles that have been around for over a thousand years and they're still standing. You go to Rome and you see, you know, paved streets that have been sitting around for 2000 years yeah. and somehow they're still here. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. I mean, it, at Oxford, um, I visited New College, which is also famous as a, a Harry Potter filming site, uh -huh. um, but it's a very beautiful place. But, uh, you know, they call it New College because it was founded in like the 1300s. Right. You know, and as opposed to Old College. Yeah, as opposed to the Old like, College, which was two, 200 years before that. Yeah. So, you know, our, our scale is very different in the U.S., <laughs> yes. um, at least uh, in terms of of. Um, unless we're talking about indigenous history. Mm -hmm. um, and that doesn't have a lot of archaeological right. um, uh, things left for us to see. Right. But you go to Europe and the history just goes back so far and people live among it every day. Right. You they know, have to. Like, to the, it's, yeah. it's part of their, like, it's part of the, the cult. It's part of the uh, infrastructure. You can't just, like, build somewhere else. It, it, it just built up with it. Yeah, exactly. It, the, the modern world has sort of grown up around mm -hmm. these um, medieval and even earlier yeah. Uh, relics of the past and it's it's quite wonderful to go and see that in a way you know you connect with it in a way that you couldn't I think if you were just looking at pictures right because it just doesn't feel quite as real to you until you're actually there and you get to touch the stone and you say you know this stone was put in place a thousand years ago which um, is insane to say yeah exactly <laughs> and then they'll let you touch it <laughs> it's yeah, also kind of yeah. insane but you know and there are some things of course that they rope off but um, <laughs> right. but it just I think travel makes other things, other places, other cultures real to us in a mm -hmm. way that even literature, as much as I love literature, it, it doesn't really do it for us. Right. Yeah. Uh, there's a, there's a seminary up in Pittsburgh called the Reformed Presbyterian Theological Seminary. And they have an old books room. And so I got to go there last time I was up in Pittsburgh and they actually have the original works, or at least some of them of Ralph Erskine, who oh, cool. was one of the brothers that started the yeah. school. Um, and we were looking around, I was trying to find just the oldest thing I could find there. And I think the oldest book I could find was, if I'm remembering the little card correctly, I think it was referring to it was from like the 1500s. Wow. Um, it was some sort of animal skin bound. Mm -hmm. Um, you could open them up and look through them. Like I, I felt like I was touching glass. Like I had to be, yeah. I, I can't put too much pressure cause I'm afraid I'm gonna like snap yep. it in half. Yep, exactly. Um, but it was all written in Latin. It was really cool that, that yeah. they have there's just this whole whole room yep. that you can go and literally pull down these books that are you know like two feet tall and I can only imagine how wide they are because I was not going to touch them and pull one out. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's that's a really cool thing that most people would not they wouldn't think English major English major trajectory and then you can go and study in person yeah. the history that that brought us this literature that you're so passionate yeah. about. Absolutely. Um, Something to sort of connect across. So as you're looking like at the medieval world, which is, I believe, your your specialty or your passion, um, and you're comparing it to our own world today, where do you think uh, the imagination that was present back then or that Christians had back then, where yeah. do you think that's gone? 
That's a really good question. Oh, I know. That's, that's one that I, I've, I've actually talked to my friend about this is yeah. where, where has the Christian imagination gone? Well, I was thinking about this, um, you know, in terms of the literature and the, the culture that is, I see, you know, particularly in medieval England, which is the thing that I've studied the most. Um, I think they lived in a, a world where everything kind of looked like a miracle mm-hmm. because not, you know, living in a period before the scientific revolution, you know, they didn't know how disease traveled. They didn't know what caused the seasons to change. They didn't right. know why the sun went up and down. Um, <laughs> everything just seemed like it was all strings attached to God, you mm-hmm. know, and God was making all these things happen. And so in a, in a way, you know, if we still live in this Christian world, we, we believe that, right? Mm-hmm. We believe that God is the animating force behind all things in the world. And yet, at the same time, I think we've kind of, um, because we understand the mechanisms right. now, I think we have a lot less sense of a sense of wonder yeah. in approaching the world because uh, we look at the sun going up and down. And we're like, well, it's it's just us going around the sun and, and this, the earth rotating. You know, that, that's just the yeah. way it is. So, you know, because we understand so much more of the mechanism, I think it's not as, as impressive to the, us. The anymore. majesty is kind of stripped away. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but at the same time, you know, I, I think human beings have always been equally full of imagination. Mm-hmm. It's just we apply it differently. So if you think about the kinds of movies we make and the kinds of books that we write now, they're far more complex uh, and usually more polished than most of the things that you find coming out of the Middle Ages, mm-hmm. where like half the things are just completely unfinished because somebody died before they finished them. Um, <laughs> or they're lost and we never knew it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or, you know, even I'm about to, to teach a very early autobiography of a woman from uh, the 15th century in England that was discovered in the 1930s in someone's attic. You know, we didn't even know it existed until Man. the 30s. So, you know, um, Maybe that's a source of wonder that on occasion you still find wonderful things in someone's attic. But uh, the kinds of artistic products that we put out now, I think, are just as imaginative Mm. as uh, whatever was written in the medieval period. But it it sometimes feels more polished or even more sophisticated just because we've had another 500 years to build on the shoulders of the giants, right? Right. That, That we now have established genres in ways that in the Middle Ages... Uh, you know, they were just just getting started. Right. Or and they're literally commentaries, but more in a fanciful way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. the, the the two authors that we had talked about, my friend and I, was um, they were uh, C.S. Lewis and, and Tolkien. Yeah. But they were, they were Christians who hearkened back to that more mysterium age. Yeah. Um, that they took these these grandiose and these ever true concepts through the yeah. through scriptures and they they wove it into these you know mat well magical yeah magical stories that yeah. drew the audience in and of a, of a new generation of like a post-industrial post-modern mm-hmm. to a degree mm-hmm. um audience and they're still relevant today they're yeah. still i mean we just had a movie series done from well just you know 10 or 15 years ago <laughs> yeah. with lord of the rings and they had that sort of almost started the 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 uh, Chronicles of Narnia. Yes, they got like three books in. Yeah, um, I was disappointed they didn't get to the Silver Chair, which oh is my man. favorite. <laughs> I see. Yeah, I I've been I started reading through it with my son, and he's not quite old enough, I think, where we can really dive into it because the the words are still a little bit right. strange comparatively. Yeah. Um, and it is truly 
asking imagination and so much of children's literature nowadays is giving it to you in a, in a visual form with the words next to it. Right. Yeah. Um, he's yeah. getting older now to where he is probably about a year or so away from being able to pick up like Carlos Sonardi and actually mm-hmm. read it yeah. and see it here. That that's to me is probably the coolest thing about literature is that God created us in such a way that we can read characters on a page and in our heads, we're creating that story like in real time yeah and we can put it down and then pick it up and our brain comes right back to that same image yeah and we can pick another book up and be reading you know three or four different kinds of stories um and almost feel like even if we're looking at like textbooks i feel like in my head i feel like i'm on like I'll imagine the person sitting there lecturing, like giving me, like reading yeah. to me this lecture, which is the book I'm reading. Absolutely. And that helps me to read it better yeah. rather than just assuming it's just text on the page. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in the, um, in the medieval period there, even the manuscript layout will tell us that, that they had this idea that reading was really just a cue for your memory hmm. that, um, well, for instance, they could be highly abbreviated right. uh, texts that would just, they'd give you, say, half of a line from scripture and they'd expect you to fill in the rest of it yourself because you knew it. Right. Or um, they would, um, Anglo-Saxon manuscripts like Beowulf, for instance, don't have line breaks. They just write from margin to margin. And you're just supposed to know, well, this is where you pause because this is where you pause. You know how this yeah. poetry works. Right. And so it's very much a cue for spoken word. And we know that they didn't, um, for the most part, read silently. If you were in a monastery in the Middle Ages, pretty much anywhere in Europe, and they were reading, you would hear this like mumbling as they read to themselves aloud. So this idea that reading is sort of a silent thing that we do in a solitary way is really a very comparatively recent idea. Hmm. Um, So, you know, (laughs) literature in the medieval period was communal. Yeah, Uh, it was highly performative you know it it was it was something that you you did for each other you know you read to each other and there's even in iceland this tradition went much longer uh for lots of historical reasons but um (laughs) it's it's called the kvoldvaka the um, evening entertainment where especially in the winter when it gets dark at three o'clock in the afternoon it's too early to go to bed so what do you do you sit around uh you know doing whatever handcrafts you're able to do by firelight and somebody reads to you or or recites to you from uh the rima or uh, or the sagas or something like that so um that's cool literature for for most of western history has been um not only deeply imaginative, but also deeply communal and shared. Uh, and I think one of the reasons I like teaching it is it becomes a shared thing again. It's not yeah. just something that I get to enjoy by myself. Right. Mm-hmm. And I mean, uh, that's great. I, 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 that's one thing I love about history is learning how the things that we see as so commonplace or so ordinary, yeah. remembering that what we have such a firm grasp of the ordinary is things that we've lost aspects of what was ordinary in back in the day. Like I, I never would have thought about the idea of people sitting down and, and reading in that way. And, and that's, that's their form of entertainment. Yeah. And that's It's almost like it's, it's a medieval version of like just sitting down and watching Netflix. Yeah. Like that is the way for you to engage with ideas and um, the world and scripture and yeah. 
and and to build a community. Absolutely. Yeah. That's really cool. And, you know, a lot of the things that we think of is just sort of obvious. Like, of course, everybody has always thought this way. You read a little bit of literature from another culture or another time period and you go, oh, I guess yeah. that's not how we always thought. Yeah. And so I always tell my um, world lit students, there's a lot of different ways to be human. Mm. And one of the ways that we get to see those ways of being human is reading other people's literature. And so uh, it's a really powerful experience to get to have our assumptions about what is normal mm -hmm. challenged by mm -hmm. literature, especially literature of the past. Right. And we, we have the ability in the modern age to 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 read these books from other languages where 200, 300 years ago, you may not have had that in your language. Yeah. Um that's one thing I've been learning going through my church history classes recently is that idea that, you know, imagine if uh, I think it was Augustine never learned Greek. Yeah. Like imagine if he had learned Greek, the amount of things he could have done with that language in his mind. Yeah. But he's never did. He never learned it. And or it's either Greek or Hebrew. It's one of the two where if he had known that one, which is a fairly sizable language in his field, the sky's the limit of what he could have done. Yeah. In, in a lot of ways, we have to be very grateful for living in the period where we do live, mm -hmm. where we have this access to technology and um, the sort of prosperity to make it possible to have all of these yeah. um, pieces of literature and scripture and um, commentaries translated into our own language. Um, I don't think that would be possible in most periods of history simply because of the technological limitations. Yeah, it's insane. Yeah. Well, so to kind of finalize it up and come to to a nice uh, neat bow on the end. What have you been doing recently in, in your field and, and, you know, with the whole being English kind of concept, what have you been doing that you'd want to tell our listeners a little more about to give you an idea of what it is that, that you get to do with your passion? Sure. Well, uh, I referenced earlier the the fact that one of the things I really like about my job is that I get to be a student forever. Mm -hmm. um, and I also mentioned that when I was, uh, choosing a graduate program, I was kind of on the fence about the PhD versus an MFA in creative writing. And uh, so finally, and this actually happened because of something at Erskine, um, finally, after having my PhD for a number of years, I said, I want to go back to school. <laughs> and so for the last two and a half years, I have been uh, doubling as a student again. And I did an MFA in creative writing from Converse College. What does MFA stand for? Uh, Master of Fine Arts. Okay. Uh, and so it's a degree in creative writing. Um, and I actually did that. It had been in the back of my mind for a really long time, especially because I'm teaching the creative writing classes that I would really like to have the sort of expertise that I had in medieval literature and that I could bring it in to the creative writing classroom as well. And uh, I went on a vocation and calling retreat a number of years ago with, well, it was about three years ago, actually, <laughs> um, with some other faculty and a number of students. And I was actually helping to facilitate the retreat. <laughs> but at the same time, when we did activities about, you know, what does it mean to live a good life? And what are the things I'm going to regret not doing if I don't do them? I was doing those activities alongside the students. And you're like, dang. Yeah, I was like, <laughs> I think I need to go back to school. So um, as a result of that retreat, I applied to this MFA program at Converse and was able to um, complete that. I completed it in August. Awesome. So for the last two and a half years, I've, I've been living the life of a student again. And it definitely <laughs> gave me um, a greater sympathy or an increased sympathy for my students who, you know, when they give me work and I give them comments back, um, I recognize how difficult it is to get criticism on your work because, you know, you kind of forget about that after you've uh -huh. been a teacher for a while and you try to be as nice as possible. But <laughs> but then 
you're a student again and you get the red marks all over your paper you're and like, you go, well, excuse me. Yes. I, ha- I have a PhD. <laughs> what are these red marks for? I don't, then, I don't get red. I give red marks. Exactly. And then you read the red marks and you go, <laughs> like, oh, oh, actually. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> so, <Touché. laughs> so yeah, it's been very educational in so many ways for me to go back and be at the, on the other side of the desk where I'm the student. Uh, and so I, I always encourage people never to think that once they finish school, that they've kind of set their path and they, they yeah, don't get to make point. any more choices. You know, so that was something I didn't have to do, but I really wanted to do. And I'm really glad I did it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I always want people to to think of the possibilities that they have in their lives and, and not to shut themselves off from possibilities just because right. they think they might be too old or they've already made a decision. You right. know, we're living in an age and a, a world in which that kind of flexibility still exists for us. And, right. and that's an incredible blessing. Yeah. And I, as a, as a final kind of quick pitch, that vocation and calling thing is something that we are doing on campus every mm-hmm. so often. So for any current students and I, I guess prospective students, if you want to come in, um, but current students, if you're listening to this episode, keep an eye out for emails or blasts or whatever to talk about the vocation and calling seminars. Is that what you'd say? Or yeah, just- we have a number of different events that we do. We do convo um, discussion panels mm-hmm. on occasion, and we usually run a um, no credit like seminar course uh, in the spring okay. that meets once a week and gives students a chance to think about you know sort of these bigger issues that often get. Um, kind of pushed to the side as right. you're just worried about getting through the exams. Yeah. And I, I can tell you from experience, having earned a degree in Bible and then not gone directly into that, uh, thinking about and wrestling with your vocation and calling and what is God calling you to that may not be that thing that you're here to study, it's a good thing to consider. Like I had to kind of fall into it yeah. as I was going through post-grad, uh, post-grad here at Erskine. Um so yeah, well, all in all, thank you, Dr. Schott, for coming out and for thank having a conversation. Having this was a, a very fun conversation. I hope it was uplifting whoever's listening. And be sure to tune in for more of these fun Erskine Conversations. Thanks for listening to Erskine Conversations. If you enjoyed today's chat, please be sure to hit that subscribe button and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. Tune in each week to hear more from the Erskine campus. Erskine is the higher education institution of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church. To learn more about Erskine, please check us out at erskine.edu. We would love to hear from you. Find us on social media by searching Erskine College or emailing us at conversations at erskine.edu. Thanks again and have a blessed day.